Hey, I'm Nick, creator of Canna Cribs and Growers Network, where we have educated millions of people on how to elevate their craft. I have toured some of the largest grow operations, befriended the best growers, and built a network of the top cannabis companies. Join me on this next adventure where I document history with the pioneers shaping the global cannabis industry in real time. Welcome to the Cannacribs Podcast. Hey, welcome back to the Cannacribs Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Morn, and today's guest is Nat Pennington. And about 20 years ago, Nat started Humboldt Seed Company. You might have heard of it. And in this interview, Nat teaches us how he started that company, a lot of advice for new breeders and new growers entering the cannabis industry, and about his most recent 10,000 plant mega hunt for the best phenotypes in the industry. Stay tuned for this interview. I hope you enjoy it. You're about to hear how Nat scaled Humboldt Seed Company over the past 20 years while providing strong genetics to tens of thousands of growers all around the world. This was all made possible by having healthy plants at his own grow operation. Like any healthy plant, the food they consume is vital to their success. This episode was brought to you by House and Garden Nutrients. I'm not sure if you knew this, but they're actually headquartered in Arcata, California, right behind Humboldt Seed Company, located in the heart of the Emerald Triangle. And just like Nat, House and Garden has helped thousands of growers succeed in cultivation with the use of their nutrients and amendments. You can check them out at house-garden.us. That's www.house-garden.us. Now on with the episode. Hey, Nat, welcome to the Can of Cribs podcast. Thanks for joining us. All right. Glad to be here. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about yourself. How'd you end up in the cannabis space? Well, uh, you know, I, I didn't go to school specifically for cannabis, obviously. Um, I, I had, you know, studied, done art and a little bit of glass blowing, but uh, didn't get too far with that and ended up, you know, making my way out here to Humboldt County at a really pretty young age. I was 18 years old. And uh, of course, you know, Humboldt is is a mecca for mm-hmm. cannabis and uh you know i i loved cannabis and as a a young adult let's just say as well and um so of course you know getting here it, it just everything fell together and and uh yeah but you know it it was a journey uh to get here a little bit as well yeah tell me about that journey i i heard that you took a road trip from philly ended up in humble and then never went back. Yeah. Well, you know, I certainly have gone to visit with, with family and friends, but, um, I was, you know, spent my, my childhood in upstate New York and in, in the Philadelphia area. And, uh, like I said, I went to school briefly for glass blowing and, and pottery actually. And then, you know, a high school sweetie, called and said hey let's take a road trip across the country and and uh you know i was certainly a, a sucker for that and and just <laughs> jumped, <would> be too. <laughs> jumped on that one and and before i knew it i was uh heading across the country and and we were you know seeing the sights and just having a blast and and we had actually ended up for a while in 
in the little town of Prescott, Arizona. And there's hey, kind of I'm a, in Tucson. Yeah, right. And there's kind of like an alternative school there. And uh, some friends of ours, uh, mutual friends, my girlfriend at the time and I were, were, were in college. And so we kind of had some places to stay. And it was kind of a whole scene. And and being from the East Coast, you know, the West Coast, you just kind of, wow, this is wild out here. And <laughs> it was the Wild West, uh, mm-hmm. for sure. But, you know, we actually ended up parting ways. And, and uh, you know, she went off with this, I got to admit, this is gorgeous female folk singer lady. I don't blame her. But <laughs> it was definitely a surprise. I was like, wow, okay. And uh, I kind of had this choice of like, you know, go back to sort of with my tail between my legs and, and, you know, face the music with family and such, or uh, continue on this journey. Yeah. And, and of course, I, I definitely made a good choice, I think, and, and ended up, you know, touring California. Uh, (laughs) I wouldn't exactly call it touring more like, you know, the classic Volkswagen bus and, um, and then, you know, San Francisco and Santa Cruz and uh, you know, San Diego even. You really then, explored it all. Yeah, but then just got to Humboldt and it was just like, wow, this is it, man. This is the the spot to be like, you know, beautiful redwood trees. And I mean, I can't say I came here just because I was on this like ca- cannabis pilgrimage or anything like that. Right. But I don't know. I had it. It's like nature was calling I think more and Humboldt is full of some of the most beautiful wild. Yeah, exactly. The redwoods, the ocean, the mountains, the rivers. And so uh, I got here and just kind of, I was like, Oh, if I could, I didn't actually believe it, but I was like, if I could stay here, it would just be amazing. And, you know, lo and behold, it, it all kind of worked out. So. Yeah. I remember I went out to Honeydew Farms in Humboldt uh, to mm-hmm. film a Canna Cribs episode and it felt like the time paused. Like we went up the hill and it's just, you're going through this, you know, warp zone and everything pauses and you're just in this beautiful bubble of nature and you're surrounded by cannabis plants and it, I am looking for reasons to take us back. So you want us to go out there to film, let me know. Oh, anytime, anytime. So you started Humboldt Seed Company in 2001. Um, Did you like work in the cannabis industry before then up in Humboldt or right when you got there, you're like, let's do this. This is what I know I want to do. Well, you know, I, I think I, I started working with, cannabis growers and and of course back then it wasn't a job so to speak it was like you know we were doing kind of the you know the really the old school style and it was a a lot of it was yeah hiking and uh definitely we weren't out in the open about it at all and you know i'm not sure how much i should get into it but you know that I think everybody knows um how humble is and and was and um so yeah but I I definitely started I had some mentors I'll say um a person that uh you know was a wonderful musician a incredible grower 
and a uh, also an environmental kind of a mentor for a lot of environmental work that I eventually got into fisheries biology and things like that and he uh, you know I wanted to emulate a lot of things about mm. you know the amazing things that he was doing in his life so that was really helpful to be honest and the power of mentorship it really yeah. changed the path of your life forever exactly and uh, you know so I definitely can't say that I decided oh you know I want to be a, a seed company right out the gate mm. but but there was a need that was really evident in humble and you know because the cannabis industry still was relatively you know had to be tucked away and hidden there was not the there wasn't as much of a continuity when it came to holding on to cannabis genetics. So okay. because people were hiding things and, you know, you, you didn't, you weren't able to just keep the same strain and, and so on and so forth. But I, I wanted to, and I wanted to not only keep genetics around that I liked a lot, but it, sometimes improve on them and have them ready for, you know, myself as much as anybody. And, and certainly just the, the community of, of, Eastern humble that, that I was in. And so before I knew it, I had kind of become one of the primary people that, you know, was the person that had seeds. And so, you know, every year I'd end up having, you know, especially obviously like December, January, March, and February, March, and April, there were a lot of folks that would come and, get seeds and and my whole thing was well bring me a a few beers you know we'll have a a beer <laughs> the around the kitchen barter. table yeah and and they would always say though you know oh i feel like you know i should pay you for this and it took it took a, a i think a girlfriend at the time being like dude you really should say yes and take compensation because well i think a she was like sick of me having people have person after person show up with beer <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then B it was just, you know, she kind of saw that, that there was something to it. And, and I was putting a bunch of effort into it. I'd always just felt like, well, if I'm doing it for myself, it's not hard for me to make enough for other people to. Yeah. And so then, you know, it, it became a real conscious shift into, you know, this is actually something that I really do enjoy and I want to, you know, continue to do it and and why not have a company and so i made my way down to the the local courthouse and got a business license and mm -hmm. that i mean that was so long ago that 20 years yeah it's it's actually like really rare that i don't think any companies with that were even cannabis minded and of course like humboldt seed company i didn't walk in and say Hey, I'm, you know, I sell all these cannabis seeds or, you know, <laughs> I walked in and just said, ah, I want to have a seed company and they're okay, great. So it wasn't exactly like that, but you know, since then, of course, we've had every humble farm, humble, you know, all the different names that could even be related are taken or whatever you want to call it. And mm -hmm. uh, so I think it was kind of, I definitely had a little bit, I mean, I, I don't want to 
come off braggy, but I had some foresight there in, in being like, all right, this is going to be a thing I want to, you know, this is something I really like doing. Yeah. You had the vision and I'm sure there's a lot of things that have changed over the past 20 years as well. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's, it's wild. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I kind of lament a little bit about the new paradigm of, of legalization or recreational use, whatever you want to call it, Mm -hmm. um, is that we, you know, sometimes we did end up losing some of the old Humboldt, you know, the original, the people that kind of made Humboldt so well known for great cannabis have not been the best at transitioning into all the regulation and red tape that's Mm. associated with like having a, a licensed farm. So I think we lost some, some skills and some, you know, really great uh, contributors to what makes Humboldt cannabis what it is. But the good news is, is that a lot of them, um, you know, are, are now parents, grandparents of, you know, you see a lot of second and third generation Humboldt farmers that are carrying the, the torch. And obviously that's a connection between uh, some of that original cannabis community. So, so how does one go about starting a seed company? I know it's not as simple as just walking down to the courthouse, getting your business licensing. I mean, nowadays you might start a website, you might get some social media set up, but where do you go next? I mean, there are so many different kinds of, of cannabis seed companies. I'd say, you know, first figure out what your, where your interests lie. Do you mm-hmm. want to, you know, kind of make, seeds that are good for uh, pheno hunting, or do you want to make seeds that are a known outcome and, you know, all of the, you know, if you say it's a cherry strain, it's going to come out like cherry every time. Or do you want to be a regular or autoflower or a feminized or CBD? So I think that that's the first thing. And then obviously just get your feet wet, you know, like actually make some cannabis seeds because it's not as easy as I, uh, you, you know, people might assume. Right. And, um, then, you know, it depends too. There, there are a heck of a lot of seed companies out there that are just kind of making seeds that are, that kind of fall under the personal use, let's just say, mm-hmm. uh, you know, either they're in a medical state or they're, you know, doing this in a basement or garage or even a closet. And it's kind of, you know, and, and we love that. I mean, while that isn't so much what Humboldt and what you would probably do here, because, you know, ironically, a place that was so that that kind of a grow, those grows were so prevalent uh, 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago, it's become almost harder now that we have all of this legalization and all of the uh, licensure and stuff. It's, you know, just as an example, I've had neighbors in, in my neck of the woods of Humboldt just last year that had been growing 
for you know quite some time out of the blue they just got busted and it really it it is because of you know the new laws and the fact that you know now we've got uh you've got to pay your dues or whatever it is and and if people aren't paying their dues then they're going to end up having enforcement action which i don't like that or agree with it but that just is the way it is so yeah and in your opinion do most seed vendors in the world right now do their own in-house breeding what's developed in the cannabis space without a doubt is that and this isn't it's not uncommon in like conventional ag seeds Mm -hmm. too but you have a seed bank which is essentially like a, a reseller slash distributor and then you have the actual seed breeder or the seed company that's creating the the seed and you know testing the genetic and all the work they're at least supposed to be doing and so to be a seed bank you certainly don't you you don't need to have a ton of uh hands-on experience with cannabis i mean you should know that you know the the breeders that you're working with are good, right. but you know, it's the- vertically integrated now. So you have yeah. both, you have the in-house breeding and research and development, but then you have the uh, seed bank side to distribute those genetics. Yeah. So, and, and we just assumed that that would be the way to, to do it. And I don't think we ever really, you know, thought about one way or another, but yeah, we make the seeds, and we have a packaging facility, which actually that's where I'm sitting right now. And then we have all different kinds of distribution, but we certainly do our own distribution sometimes. And we have, you know, farmers come in here regularly and, you know, we're having meetings with them and, and uh, we call it genetic consultations. And so we'll okay. have those pretty, pretty regularly in here with uh, people that have licenses in California. Yeah. And in my research, you know, running the growers network forum, we have a little over 10,000 growers at the time of this recording. Uh, We are kind of an affiliate for a lot of different seed banks around the world and a lot of different uh, types of genetics. So um, in my research and in running those partnerships and relationships, a lot of those partners are overseas, you know, like in Spain, for example. So how is Humboldt Seed Company able to operate successfully in the United States, but maybe those companies can't? Right. Well, that's a good question. So, you know, we've now set up uh, satellites and we have production in different parts of the world. Uh, oh, wow. More and more coming on all the time. And so we kind of, you know, take SOPs and we take, uh, methodology and and sort of what you know because I'll tell you one thing it definitely uh, it's not you asked earlier just like how do you start a seed company yeah the years and years of experience that we've got like just as an example here in Humboldt uh, or in the Emerald Triangle or you know over in Amsterdam that really does make a huge difference you can identify problems that you've maybe seen in the past and kind of head them off before they become issues for your customers and, and things like that. 
really does make a huge difference. So I guess back to what your question was, is how do we, uh, we, we look at it kind of like, you know, our base is here in Humboldt. We actually have licenses, a couple more licenses in California and Nevada County. And uh, Ben Lynn down there runs those. He's uh, the CAO for the company. And then we've got operations in Oregon and Oklahoma. And in all of those different places, we do actually produce seeds in, in Maine as well. And we were, we've got an operation happening in Spain. But, you know, just to wrap it back around, a lot, all of the IP and the methodology and a lot of the breeding really originates here. But at the same time, you know, I have to admit that there are great things that we find, you know, like we've got, we're doing some work in South Africa and Jamaica and, you know, those are places that are hotbeds for cannabis genetics as well. So I think as the plant gets, you know, is a little bit uh, destigmatized and, mm -hmm. and as laws change, you know, it's just going to even more open up pathways to, you know, both share and improve the genetics. And then, you know, we always, our heart is in uh, not only improving, but making sure that we preserve some of the different special attributes of cannabis that could, you know, potentially could be lost if we shift too far towards, you know, monoculture, you know, having just a couple strains that become popular. And, and lo and behold, we'll probably find out, you know, a few years down the road after some more studies happen and so on and so forth that, that maybe, you know, there are more molecules than just THC and on all the different terpenes that are out I'm there. I'm so excited for that research, Nat. Yeah. And I, I think we, a lot of us, uh, you know, sort of seasoned cannabis smokers, we know that because, or consumers, I guess I should say, we, we know that inherently because of all the different experiences we've had with the plant over, over our lives. We know that there's more to it than just, Oh, we're you know, scratching the surface. Yeah. And but I do see that the consumer base, you know, if you look at like the California market, we, we always breed for turpins and the effects of cannabis. And we have, you know, a pretty significant catalog, but just to be completely honest, when it comes to us doing those genetic consultations for big farms in California, we do have to guide them more towards, you know, especially if they want to produce a grade, you know, top shelf flour that goes into a jar. People are making their purchasing choices based on THC numbers more than they are, yep. you know, the smells and, and the things that they really should be maybe um, making choices based on, but you know, so it's a big, it's a tough job. And I think we're doing a pretty decent job of balancing, you know, those consumer, the, the market 
drivers like THC and what we, you know, what our hearts tell us is important, like, you know, terpen profiles and, and uh, different cannabinoids and some things that are we yet to even unlock as far as research and, and yeah. understanding. Well, let's dive into seeds versus clones. So I read an article where you actually mentioned seeds potentially being better than clones for commercial growers. Can you explain why for our audience? Sure. Well, it's always, I, it's a little bit of a, of course, of, of like a needle that we thread with that. Cause we do a ton of breeding with clones and, of, and, you know, we have amazing business partnerships with California's largest clone nurseries as well, where we're, you know, providing them with, with clone genetics, but we definitely, you know, one thing that's become really evident uh, is I'm sure folks that are listening have heard about pesticides and cannabis and, you know, chemicals and all the testing that's needed to happen to clean it up and, and make the industry uh, safer, know, safer. And, and we're, you know, of course, a hundred percent behind that. I think it obviously folks that, we're growing cannabis never had any intention to put harmful chemicals on it. But sometimes the, the way that we were sharing genetics with clones from, you know, basement to garage to closet to, you know, there was, there was this amazing network that I, and I wouldn't change it if I had the chance. It's, I think it's great the way that that works, but it led to a lot of, of insects and pathogens ending up getting passed from one, mm. you know, basement, one garage to another. And uh, so, you know, we basically had to start, you know, trying to get rid of the sword. I mean, yeah. the, the spread of genetics uh, through that network, that organic network, that spread was great, but it also carried negative side effects. Kind of one of the cons of seeds uh, which I have to touch on because I don't want to be one-sided here is the, mm -hmm. you know, we have with, with a seed, it's a, it's a new life form. And so you're going to have, it's clean, but you can have uh, a lot of variation in genetics and it just really depends on how you do your breeding. Um, it's, I like to do a comparison with like dog breeding a lot and, you know, okay. some, some seeds are essentially mutts. And, and the, the ironic thing is that, you know, mutts sometimes make the best dogs and it, and that kind of holds true with seeds as well. If you take, if you take a, you know, a recent popular strain and cross it with a classic one that you love, you're probably going to, find something in there that is amazing, but that doesn't necessarily work very well if you are trying to plant 10,000 seeds and, and have an acre or two of cannabis or whatever it is, you're more likely to want to have a whole bunch of uh, more clone-like plants where you can you know mix the whole harvest together and batch it all up. And that was, honestly, like one of the things as a, 
evolving seed company here in Humboldt County, you can probably imagine that, you know, it was not a really an easy place or a forgiving place to, to build out a seed company because we have some of the best cannabis growers in the world in the world. Yeah. And they expect, you know, to have performance from their genetics. And, uh, as the cannabis market grew and grew, one thing that we started noticing as a seed company was, you know, people needed to have bigger batches of cannabis Mm. to sell. And they had to come from plants that looked and smelled and, you know, tested fairly identical. And so that was something that we set out to do quite some time ago. And I think that's probably one of the things that we're best known for. And uh, just as an example, you know, we created a strain called Blueberry Muffin. Hmm. It was like 2010. And uh, if you look at all the reviews that there are about it, and if you, you know, hear from people, their experience, I think like Leafly, let's just say they can be quoted saying like, it's the most aptly aptly named strain around because it really truly does smell like blueberry muffins. And, and the thing that, that I think we're really proud about is the fact that we can guarantee that every seed that you grow from our blueberry muffin seed line actually will have that smell and it'll come out Mm -hmm. you know true true to form um and so that's basically all in the breeding and you know true true breeding seed is not an easy accomplishment it's not something that you can just do in one year so you know when it comes to having the pros and cons of of clones versus seeds it depends where you're getting your seeds for sure. And it depends how much work that breeder has put into making a seed line that is one, you know, very stable and, and produces, uh, you know, consistency, consistency. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I, I'm not even getting into the whole, like there's, you probably, if you've ever done any gardening, you might've bought like hybrid corn and, there's a little bit of a misnomer in cannabis that, well, it's just in conventional breeding, uh, a hybrid varietal is one that has two incredibly inbred lineages that, mm. that are brought together in the final stage of, of the seed creation. So it's basically a, a highly inbred mother and a highly inbred father. And that, sounds bad but already yeah from the start (laughs) that does not sound like a healthy baby right but it plant breeding and animal breeding are are different and uh but it i mean it is it's basically like if you look at labradoodles for example you've got you know purebred poodles and purebred labradors and all of a sudden they come together and you've got this like these litters of really like cool dogs and it's very similar almost every uh major agricultural crop the work has been put into making seed 
so that you can have hybrid because it's kind of a phenomena where you, when you bring those highly inbred vines and in and of themselves, <clears throat> they're, they're actually not appealing because they're so inbred and they're, and they're almost, uh, they have inbred depression, so they don't mm. have hybrid vigor. What, but the, the phenomena of breeding in general is when you bring those two together, you get all of a sudden the, the genetics are reinvigorated and, and you've got what we call hybrid vigor. And you've, but, but at the same time, you end up with uniformity and consistency. And so it's kind of this holy grail of, of seeds. And that's something that we, we actually kind of released our first uh, effort at that last year with our early girl OG hybrid seed. And it's just basically the product of, of a, many, many years of creating inbred lines. And, and it, it seems to be, have worked really well. So we're excited about that. Yeah. And, and over the past 20 years, Nat, I am sure over your, you know, breeding um, experience, you've come across a fair bit of fraud and other companies or growers or breeders around the world, uh, perhaps taking some of your genetics and putting it under their own brand, their own company. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah, it's a touchy subject for sure. Um, you know, there's like, there's ethics and then there's the legality of things. Mm -hmm. And, and in, especially in cannabis, the, the legality question is, is, you know, really hard to unravel because you don't have any enforcement anyway. It's right. if you were to, you know, trademark or patents and things like that are, trickier because you know we don't have the federal government uh, looking into any of that stuff in the u.s and and then it's a global thing cannabis is a plant that's enjoyed and consumed i would venture to say in just about every nation on the planet and so you know it's not a uh it's not an easily controllable uh plant and which I love about it. I mean, you know, it, if I were to have a choice of whether, you know, to have all cannabis completely just open source and versus having it totally locked up by a whole bunch of patents and mm -hmm. I, I would definitely choose the open source. And what I think we're going to end up with is, more like a, uh, you know, there, there will be some battles that happen between companies and, and over patent infringement. And, yep. And that's that inevitable now is that that's going to happen regardless, no matter what we do now, that patent war on cannabis genetics will be in our future. Yeah. And we'll see if it really becomes a war because you know there there was this rush to get a bunch of patents on cannabis that were probably kind of undue or they 
they were overbroad and overreaching patents mm. for for things that weren't necessarily a hundred percent the creation of the patent applicant. So okay. you know, for to get a patent, really it's you should have put a lot of work into creating something that is they use the word novel. Yeah. And so novelty factor. Right. And so you have to have created, you know, either a a method or, and you can, you can patent plants and you can have different kinds of patents on plants. Some of them are more broad and some of them are, you know, only specifically for one, like a clone or one iteration of the plant. And so, yes, I do believe that there will be litigation and, and that that is inevitable, but I don't, necessarily think that it's going to be as powerful as people tend to think because you know fortunately cannabis is an incredibly diverse plant like we were discussing before yeah and so you know as as important as it might be to find you know wonderful strains and wonderful genetics i also tend to think that people will continually want to try the next version. And so it's going to be hard to find, you know, the, I mean, if you look at apples and, you know, like I, one thing I found really interesting and kind of akin to cannabis is this cotton candy grape thing that just came out. Have you ever Hmm. tried those? I haven't. No. What is that? (laughs) It's, it's literally, they're grapes and they truly, truly taste just like cotton candy. And you can it's just not, go to the store and buy these grapes. Yeah. Yeah. They're really popular. Huh. And, and whoever came up with that, I'm sure that they, you know, did, they've done their best at kind of being compensated for that discovery. And it probably took a good amount of work to get there to, you know, create a grape that actually tastes like cotton candy. But I really do feel like, you know, we just, you know, years ago, we created, uh, you know, a strain that smells like blueberry muffin. And so, you know, there's a lot of similarities between conventional agricultural breeding and, and cannabis. So, so last year, Philo's bioscience caused a little bit of a stir when uh, it was kind of discovered that they had an internal breeding program going on. And I didn't really dive too deep into that whole uh, controversy, but what happened in your opinion? Can you teach me um, what went on and what is Philo's doing today? Yeah. You know, we were, we did a decent amount of work with the folks from Philo's and we don't have uh, particularly like hard feelings. We, know that you know groups have shareholders and things like that that they need to look out for and sometimes you know that's unfortunately i think sometimes sort of the crux of of our you know the u.s system that we've created is that you know these corporate entities and and they don't always act in the best interest of the whole because Mm. there's our shareholders that are involved and and so, you know, I kind of think that there, there was a lot of 
of that kind of motivation involved with the whole Philos thing and that they, you know, had had to make some decisions that maybe weren't what they were originally uh, supposed to be doing. And so I know a lot of people that had given them genetic material from their own cannabis right. breeding programs, things like that, who were in the understanding that they were not a company that w was ever intending to use information or genetic material to then, you know, profit and make money in the, in the breeding space. And then just to have them kind of, you know, turn on a dime and all of a sudden, you know, they were, and, and it was a little misleading. I mean, the, the public, uh, program, and then what was said internally, which was an elite, it was a leaked investor meeting, right? Yeah. There was a, a fella who, you know, knew his way around social media and had recorded a public mm -hmm. meeting. Um, so they didn't really, he didn't do anything specifically wrong and, and put yeah. it online. And it kind of really just showed a, a lot. It sort of showed a lot of their hand of mm. what they were trying to do. And, and there were things that were said in that video recording to this room full of potential investors that were just out, outright, like, you know, they were misleading the investors and, and many of us knew that, that, you know, like, oh my gosh, not only are you saying things that are uh, insulting to anybody, anyone else in the cannabis space, but you're also actually not, you're, you're misleading this poor, you know, I mean, if they're, in, if they're potential investors, they're not poor, but let's just say you're misleading these people <laughs> who, you know, might put their hard earned money, um, mm -hmm. you know, into this company and, and knowing that it was sort of definitely hard to watch because, mm. you know, they had collected all this information and all of a sudden they were saying, now we're the best. We're in the best position of anyone to be able to, to breed cannabis genetics. And wow. I, that was not, even remotely true because all the information that they had collected was at best anecdotal and didn't have like real hard and fast data connected to it. And, and also you can't use like breeding cannabis. There are advantages to having, let's just say like uh, a molecular breeding program or marker assisted breeding or you know da, 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 the gmo and and gene editing um which you know they weren't necessarily saying that they were doing that but it sort of begs the question but i i'm very familiar with all of those different methods and we actually have a molecular breeding program we're not modifying we're not gene editing we're not doing any of those things but the the irony is that you can't, like a computer can't tell you what cannabis consumers are going to like. And a computer can't tell you what terpenes 
are, you know, going to be popular in the next year. And, and, you know, a computer, there are certain things maybe that, you know, like even THC, the THC synthase gene occurs at so many different loci in the genome that you the functionality of that is is not something that's very easily controlled via gene editing or even a molecular you know a marker assisted breeding program and so these things that that maybe the the advantages that they might have had had they had this huge data set that had truly hard and fast data attached to it um you can't just you know turn on a computer and switch the artificial intelligence switch to on <laughs> and and it tells you right. you know oh Wiz Khalifa is going to rap about that one next so you better breed <laughs> for that <laughs> you know? so there's really more to it more to it than that and the you know they they also said that they had a uh, exclusive agreement with um, Illumina, which is a genetic uh, sequencing hmm. machine. Essentially, it, it, it's you can sequence D DNA, and they're top of the line sequencing equipment. And that wasn't true because you know we had sequenced cannabis with Illumina equipment as well. So there was just a lot of things that were like, you know boy that's a stretch and uh and and it ended up being a huge social um debacle and a major controversy in the cannabis space and the ripples and waves that it created are still you know having an effect and i feel like oh really i because well, i feel like i haven't heard about them really sensed that debacle i guess about a year ago i mean are they they're still around they're still a business yeah phylos is still a business as far as i yeah um i i know that they're looking more at the hemp space because you know one of the things is, is if you want to invest a ton of money into marker assisted breeding programs or different kinds of of doing you know breeding that is really technical you you need to be protecting that intellectual property that you're creating via patents via so on and so forth and so in hemp which i believe that they're doing some more work in hemp that it's a little bit more straightforward because it's not you know a schedule one drug anymore or whatever um, yeah but you know the scientists at at Phylos are all a bunch of really nice people and, and mm -hmm. smart people. And, uh, I'm, you know, some of their outreach and staff and, and, uh, we don't hold anything against them and we wish them the best. It was definitely a, um, precipitous falling from grace that kind of yeah. occurred at, at that time. And, and I don't know whether they deserved all of it, but, there were some things that seemed a little disingenuous that happened and it was, um, you know, just goes to show that, you know, the cannabis space doesn't seem to reward 
uh, folks that are not authentic yeah. or, you know, and so it, which is amazing because I don't think any of us really expected that. But if you look at like what's happening with a lot of the, you know, super funded companies that are traded on Canadian stock exchange and things like that. And of course, like the med men's of the world and, and those kinds of groups, there seems to be a trend where they're not having a lot of successes and it's kind of, it's hard to ignore. I mean, I, don't think that I'm saying anything that everybody doesn't know. So I'm not worried about saying that, but it seems like the, the authentic companies that have been in the space for quite some time and have this understanding of how to navigate uh, both ethically and, and kind of keep the, the teamwork and be collaborative there. They seem to be, somehow being successful against you know it's sort of like the what is it david and goliath or i don't even know the saying but you know kind of like the the small to mid-sized operations here in california are crushing it and in humble you know who would have thought that a whole bunch of kind of uh you know that these weed smokers in Cali would be, you know, actually making it through this wild upturn with, with the, probably what is, you know, one of the most financially uh, exciting industries since the dot-com era, you know? Yeah, it really is. And um, I appreciate your, explanation of what happened with phylos and um, kind of that breakdown and where we're at as an industry right now of authenticity really uh shining and and being rewarded um i appreciate you breaking that down for me so we're going to take a quick break um, for everyone listening and don't go away right after the break we're going to talk about your ten thousand plant phenotype mega hunt so we'll be right back Hey, hope you're enjoying the episode so far. I want to shine a light on another incredible Humboldt company, Royal Gold. They have grown their company alongside Nat in Northern California, providing one of the original cocoa soils nationally distributed to some of the most discerning cultivators in the world, many that we filmed here at Canicribs. And as home gardening, industrial, commercial hydroponic, and organic cultivation industries continue to grow, Royal Gold is right there alongside of them, continuing to innovate and create new products and ways to help gardeners of all shapes and sizes succeed. Check them out at royalgoldcoco.com. That's royalgoldcoco.com. Now back to the episode. All right. So we are back from the break. And I noticed uh, on your website, you guys produced a video on your 10,000 plant phenotype mega hunt. Uh, do you want to tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, so, you know, everybody told me that that was a crazy idea and, you know, it would be just way too much. And, and to be honest, it was a heck of a lot of work, <laughs> but you know, what we saw with California and the expansion of, of the weed world and with, with a lot more acreage and 
in Humboldt, I thought, you know, how can we take advantage of that or in California right. in general? And cause it's, you know, it was, while it was maybe not good for really small mom and pops, there was still, I think a way for, and what I came up with was making this collaborative phenotype mega hunt, which is something that we've continued doing, but what it was in 2018 and, and 19, we kind of developed this idea and got a group of farmers together that has, nice. you know, significant grows and, and were willing to look at our seed populations. And so we kind of split it up. We had different crosses that we knew would produce, you know, amazing offspring and, uh, allocated, you know, some farms did up to like 3000 happy dreams farm, I think handled like 3000 of them. That's pretty cool. You split it up that way. Yeah. We had other farms that were, you know, more like 2000. And I think the smaller farm was 800 or something like that. And, and we did, uh, close to a thousand ourselves, but the idea, what well, what we've done for many, many years is we go and, and take vegetative cuttings or clones off of the plants right before they go into flower. And that way, and we catalog everything. So the ones in the field are labeled to the cuttings that we've taken off of them. So we know that it's a, you know, genetic clone of the one in the field. And then once we've got them all preserved like that in in our clone room then you know the fun part happens and yeah. we the video i think that you're referencing which is uh, on our website it's a bunch of different places but um we actually invited media and we invited a whole slew of different collaborators from dispensary owners to the general public to you know newspapers tv and and had i missed a, the invite nat i, <laughs> I would have loved to film that for can of cribs yeah i that would have been perfect but we'll have you guys next time obviously we're, we're not doing a you know giant get together like that this year for mm -hmm. obvious reasons but um you know we'll we'll certainly do it again and and what we were able to do over the course of that weekend uh, well, long weekend, we did three days and we actually looked at a subset, but a significant subset of the plants. So we went around and I think we were able to look at around 3000 of the, the living plants and the different participants had notebooks or, you know, that we had, uh, iPads and, and data sheets and, and we developed many years ago, a, phenotype rating data sheet that Super cool. has you know all the different attributes that we consider uh critical to breeding what were and some so, of those attributes for example well i'll tell you this it's actually we published our phenotype data sheet on the cannabis horticultural association website so if folks actually want to look at it that's something that i think we published five or six years ago but uh, it has, you know, like the different turpins, the trichome content. It's got, uh, it, 
just everything that you can imagine that you might appreciate about cannabis. And, and of course, like farmer friendly things too, like, you know, how much vigor does the plant have? Hmm. Does it, you know, require trellising or does it kind of hold itself up really well? All those different uh, things that are both, you know, something that consumer might be interested in and also something for the, the farmer too, because that's important as well. And uh, yeah, at the end of the day, what the idea was to find, you know, 10 or so just exemplary cuttings and just hope and pray that they were actually cataloged and, and made it through that whole process. And fortunately it, it worked out really well in some of our one percent that that's what you guys were looking for yeah we did we ended up gosh yeah and and so you know we do that to some degree every year and in 2019 we set that target of 10,000 plants and boy did it was it a lot of work to go and take yeah and and a lot of them we tend to try to take two cuttings off of each plant because if you've ever, you know, taken clones before, you know, that, you know, if you have 95% success rate, you're doing pretty good. There's always going to be a couple of them that don't make it. So if you have redundancy, take two cuttings, then you're in pretty good shape. So we probably really, ended up doing around 15, 16,000 cuttings in the field and keeping them alive. But this happened over the course of, of one growing season. So we had like light deprivation and, and it was spread out as far as the timing of it, but it all did kind of come together in, in our big event where we actually had all of those different people out there raiding the the clones and we went to i think four farms to look at the 3000 plants and, and that entire 10000 plant pheno hunt what was the most exciting find that you took back to humble seed company that's everybody definitely always asks that question i I like the plant, the vanilla frosting plant, which is something that we had created with uh, Happy Dreams Genetics. Well, they weren't really a genetics company at the time, but we made a cross of something that, you know, we had really special that we had been working on and something that they had and came together and and looked at 3,000 plants. And so that was a particular find that I thought was exemplary and has really had a lot of sort of like a lasting effect on the market because it tests really high. And I Mm -hmm. think as I mentioned before, that's really important to people. So So you're able to bring that back into production and then people can start buying it maybe six months after three months after like walk me through that timeline. So yeah, then we'll, we'll bring that to, the public in clone form. And we do that with like our nursery partnerships that we've got here in California. Like dark, dark heart, for example. Yep. Those guys and and Hendricks farms and the list kind of goes on, but the process to do that actually 
has gotten longer and longer the more that we've kind of learned that, you know, because just because something does really well in a field uh, or a light depth doesn't mean that it's going to do well indoor. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to do well in, you know, light depth or a field. All the different growing conditions <clears throat> need to kind of be truthed out and tested. So these days, it takes longer than six months. But back then, we actually did come forward with some of them in, you know, about six months. So you kind of nailed it there. And Fortunately, we didn't run into a lot of problems and, you know, I, that's, that's looking at trying to pick one plant out of 10,000 or excuse me, 10 plants out of 10,000. Yeah. That is a lot of R and D I would say just, you know, compared to some folks, but we've held ourselves definitely to a little bit more of a standard and now we you know, collaboratively test it with all the different environments, you know, make sure that it doesn't all of a sudden, you know, it doesn't hate the indoor growing environment and it wants to hermaphrodite or something like that. Or the other one that's new that we do before we release something is we look for the, uh, any pathogens. So test it for the hop latent diploid virus or any other, you know, diseases and things that, that might be in it. That could be passed through. So when you find a new phenotype that you really like, you know, you're going to bring it to market. How closely do you work with those breeders if it's not under your company? Yeah. So, you know, just for example, um, we have a, a new strain out called, we, it's called the freak show. And that one is something <laughs> And folks may have seen it. It's kind of all over the cannabis media these days because it's so uh, entirely different from any other cannabis plant. I would definitely venture to say that it's probably the most unique cannabis plant that just about ever that's come out. So why why is that, Nat? What makes it so unique? Well, it's got these leaves that don't resemble cannabis at all. It looks something like a fern crossed with a marigold crossed hmm. with maybe a cannabis plant at one point, but it, you know, it's, it's almost unrecognizable as cannabis, especially before it's budding. And then when it buds, you know, if you know, if you know your stuff, you might be like, that's, those are buds, that's weed, but everything else about it, it, it has these lacy, leaves that don't have like the traditional five finger, seven finger, 11 finger kind of cannabis leaf that you, that we're all accustomed to. That's got these, uh, it's like a pinnate, uh, leaf form that hmm. is very lacy and it looks like a fern. I mean, it does not look at all like a cannabis plant. That and so fascinating. Yeah. You've got to check it out. It's on the cover. Sure. It's on the cover of grow magazine, actually the, the last issue that came out, but um, okay. it's also all over our website. And <laughs> we'll definitely media. link it. Yeah. We'll link it yeah. in the show notes. And for everyone watching this interview on YouTube, uh, we have a bunch of videos and pictures that we'll put in uh, to the interview while we're talking. Yeah. So the freak show plant, 
we didn't, uh, we, we made all the seeds at our facilities, but we, we didn't create the strain. It was uh, a, a fellow who goes by the breeder name Shapeshifter uh, for, I guess, the obvious freak reasons. show by Shapeshifter. I like by that. Shapeshifter. Yeah. And the, I mean, the cool thing is, is it produces really good cannabis. So as much as it doesn't look like cannabis, <laughs> it is cannabis. It's not cannabis sativa or cannabis indica or ruderalis. It's, I would, you know, almost say it deserves like it's an entire new Whoa. subspecies, but, um, it, it makes really nice bud and it tests reasonably high for THC. It's like, you know, 18% and is, uh, average it seems like. And it has uh, really amazing turpins too. It's got kind of like, I don't know. It's really hard to describe. It's they're unique. And mm. a lot of people say, you know, hints of cherry and kind of like maybe a little bit of train wreck smell. Then I have some that I feel like have kind of a, just a gassy paint thinner almost smell, but it, it's a, a very unique turpin profile on the freak show strain. And so, you know, even if it didn't have the crazy amazing leaf structure that it does, I think it's something that we would be interested in, in working with. So, yeah. And I'm, I'm fascinated with your business model, Nat. So let's say you come across genetics, um, like the freak show, do you reach out to shapeshifter those types of breeders or do they reach out to you? And then you just have like a, a licensing agreement to resell their genetics on their behalf. Yeah, exactly. So, Ooh. you know, it's tricky these days because I think we talked about before, there's not a lot of things that you can do to, you know, protect your, your work. And, and so, you know, we like to think of it as like, Hey, you know, we're doing this because we love the plant and we love what we yeah. do. And, you know, so every day is vacation. If you love your occupation or whatever. That's right. <laughs> Um, I love that quote, <laughs> but the shapeshifter deserves credit, you know, because he found this amazing thing. And one thing that, you know, always resonated for me that, that he said was he, he had been working in and breeding with cannabis for many, many years. I don't want to say exactly how long, but a long freaking time. Oh, and geez. that experience to find something like this genetic and to not just throw it away because I know, especially like in my early days of breeding and when we were cutting our teeth as a seed company in late nineties, early two thousands, you know, if you found mutations and if you found things that don't look right in your breeding population, you were like, ah, get this out of here. I'm scared of it. And he, I think, had the level of comfort in what he was doing to- That wisdom. Yeah, to recognize that it was special and that it, you know, rather than get it, get it out of his population and hide it, then maybe he wanted to work with it. And so he did and preserved that- 
leaf shape and was able to get it to the point where it was basically uh, ready for us to, to take it and then kind of produce it at scale. And, and he 100% deserves to be compensated for that because otherwise, yeah. you know, like what, there should be compensation for the development of unique and special cannabis genetics. And so, but once upon a time, beer was just as good of a barter. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, we definitely seek to have transparent relationships with other breeding companies because you can't cannabis doesn't just spontaneously you know there's no immaculate conception everything has to start from genetics and it's the work that you put in that makes it uh sort of your own creation and and that work should be rewarded and so a hundred percent you know we say it's it's not cool to just take someone's work and recreate it and uh then try to profit off of that but you know when it comes down to like you know on the other hand we don't love like the monsanto model where you know it they have certain aspects of their seeds so locked up that if if a farmer is growing next to a farmer that's not growing and then the pollen from their seed blows yeah. on to you know and then all of a sudden with you just all you wanted to do is grow your own corn and keep the seed like you've been doing for you know since time immemorial and and all of a sudden you can't do that because you know, this patented corn is right. Is it happening in a, in a different way though? Is it happening with the rise of hemp genetics and hemp farms in this country outdoor, you know, kind of wind blowing um, over to a canvas farm and messing up their crop? Is that, is that happening um, in your opinion right now? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I, we hear a lot about that from folks up in Oregon in particular and uh, the Oregon recreational people that might have either just, you know, greenhouse or outdoor cannabis that, that they do not want to have, you know, seeds in it. And then this new emergence of a significant hemp market and the fact that hemp is grown at such scale that it's pretty hard to be 100% sure that you're never going to have uh, a male plant that releases pollen and all of a sudden, you know, there's seeds everywhere in, in both the hemp, which is bad for most people don't want even their hemp to be seeded, but then, you know, it gets your neighbors and, and all of a sudden their whole cannabis crop that, you know, it's expensive and, and it's a major issue. It's a huge loss for a small cannabis business to have everything get uh, full of seeds. Is there any way it can be avoided when you're growing outdoors, in your opinion? 
Well, you know, one of the things we're looking into here in Humboldt County, because there are people locally in Humboldt that would like to set up some, you know, big hemp production here. And there's been a contingent that is really opposed because they've heard about sort of the horror stories of Oregon right. and, and the pollen getting out and things like that. But I think there are some sensible solutions, but unfortunately they kind of involve, you know, regulation of course. And so a hemp grower, basically if you want to be a good neighbor, you shouldn't be doing something that really, really adversely affects the neighborhood. And if in Humboldt, you know, let's just say, a, you know, there's a decent portion of the neighborhood that, you know, has an economic surrounding seedless cannabis and, and the recreational cannabis market. So I do think that, you know, as hemp growers, if they do eventually take kind of have a foothold in Humboldt, there will be some strong regulation. It may just be, yeah. you know, feminized seed only, uh, clone only, and and there are you may... going to be supplying that growth, Matt? Are you trying to diversify into uh, hemp genetics? Well, yeah, we do have a hemp line already, and we we did a project with uh, the Yurok Agricultural Corporation. So okay, there there's the local humble Native American community is actually quite robust and. And it's pretty awesome that we've got that, uh, you know, here because those cultures were obviously, you know, really sort of hurt in other parts of the country and they're intact more here, which is, which is great. And so we worked with uh, one of the local tribes and, and did produce some hemp seed. It seems like the hemp market is not doing super hot right now and what why is that in your opinion you know it's it's funny because for better for i mean cannabis is what do they say it's the most widely consumed recreational drug in the world i think and i i'm not sure if that in, includes alcohol or not but you know that has for many many years that's developed into this robust industry whether it was black market or now white market yeah. and cbd as awesome as it is and as great as hemp is there haven't been people you know there hasn't been this black market ne network of people buying and selling hemp rope or, mm. you know, hemp herd or, you know, buying CBD uh, tincture from that guy on the, down the road who, you know, you, so the, because- the iceberg under the water that has been there building up this cannabis industry, this trade network, whether it was black market or not, that's what you're saying is it's been there for cannabis, but not for hemp. Right. So with hemp, you know, we had the farm bill, which basically made it legal and, and really made it crystal clear that the feds were not 
going to go after a hemp farmer. So people planted thousands, hundreds of thousands of acres. And now there's not as much of an established market to handle all that product. And I mean, I heard just last week that there was someone's trying to just give away uh, hundreds and thousands, hundreds of thousands of pounds of hemp biomass in California right now because it's just not selling. And so that's going to even itself out like that. There's going to be the market will balance. Yeah, it will. And there's always going to be, I think from now on, I hope that there is a robust hemp, um, market for all the different byproducts and products that come from the cannabis plants. And yeah. I definitely, you know, even if occasionally it puts some pollen that's maybe not wanted, I think that that's going to work itself out and, and there'll be a place where that's okay. And, and maybe some places where, you know, we don't want that so much. And so, you know, hopefully we don't have, too many financial casualties in that process of, of, you know, it working itself out as far as the economics go. Right. Hopefully, hopefully the businesses can sustain themselves. Can you share some advice for maybe some smaller breeders or growers out there of how they can really use their genetics to stand out from other growers in the market? Sure. Yeah. I think that that's really important to think about as a as a grower and as you know obviously as a breeder and one of the things that has been really successful for us is finding a couple you know as a small breeder let's just say we can start with that finding partners that are cultivators who can give you immediate and honest feedback about Mm. the genetics that you're providing. And so those kinds of relationships with, uh, you know, be they small growers or, or even big growers, but, you know, oftentimes it's nice to have someone who is willing to, you know, throw a few of of your new genetic into the corner of their grow and and try it out. And, uh, from the grower perspective, having different and new, exciting genetics is, I think, you know, incredibly important to differentiate yourself. Uh, if you're a small business, if you're even a medium sized cultivator, you know, the, one of the harder things about getting dispensary shelf space for example can be just the fact that you you know walk in there and and you've got the same genetic as everyone else and so everybody that day came in with their product and they all had og kush or whatever and Mm -hmm. just having something different can really get you sort of past that first filter that a lot of dispensaries have to have for like, well, I'm sorry, but we are all stocked up on 
OG Kush. We, yeah. we can't can't take anymore. And so having something unique, having something different, like maybe a different cannabinoid profile or okay. just you know, are there even, trends in those cannabinoid profiles or phenotypic traits that you see are gaining popularity that growers and breeders can um, kind of cultivate towards? Yeah. And, you know, we have, a, there's certainly like the sativa indica thing and you could, you know, you could come in with sativa strains are, tend to be a little less common right now. So those are desirable for dispensaries and they may be a little trickier to to grow or or just trickier to even find as a grower or but you know if you're a breeder and you kind of diversify your offerings and work with a grower who then gets those into the market and gets some kind of recognition then all of a sudden you you know you might be surprised i mean you mentioned <clears throat> cannabinoid profiles and there's uh, new cannabinoids that we're discovering all the time that, you know, may have effects like, you know, like THCV, they say might be an appetite suppressor. And, you know, wow. someone like, like me, I, that sounds good. <laughs> Cause you know, I, over the years have put on some pounds from maybe is that the one maybe that from I heard, the munchies? Yeah, right. Is that the one that I heard dubbed as like skinny weed? I like think cultivars so. with that uh, cannabinoid. Yeah, THCV, and and there's a few. Um, there's actually a breeder in in Mendocino that has you know really really taken an interest in breeding specifically for that cannabinoid. And really, that's so yeah. interesting. And then, of course, the the CBD, the there's CBG. I mean, you know, we're discovering new types all the time, and and really? also on a on an annual basis, you're coming up with or discovering new cannabinoids and bringing those to market. Yeah, well, you know, and it's us or the laboratories or researchers right. in specific, and and so, but teasing out what the effects of those different you know peaks in in different cannabinoids might be is kind of in a way up to the consumer it can be a little subjective so hmm. and, and as i'm sure you know all the cannabis smokers out there know you know a different strain can you, you can actually like build up a tolerance to a certain type of cannabis and it doesn't you know have the effect maybe that you're looking for anymore if you're you know just smoke a, a joint or whatever it it doesn't do the same thing and so then that's uh often you know people would try something new and, right. and i think that's kind of one of the beauties of cannabis and it sort of circles back to that whole discussion we were having about gene editing and and yeah. you know breeding from a sort of molecular breeding but that and i'm not saying that that isn't those aren't going to be useful tools and those aren't tools that we're using but i think also you know it just really there's so much human uh it's it's so 
dependent on what people actually like and that is uh, subjective at its core so you know and i'm influenced not so easily by culture as you put it you know uh, a musician rapper you know wiz khalifa could mention you know uh, a certain cultivar in a song and then boom people want to go try that you know yeah exactly and and i actually i love that because you know it keeps it fresh and it keeps it moving and i think what we want as a community in cannabis is for you know not to have everything be consolidated so that you can really only buy your your cannabis from like let's say the big three producers or something like that kind of like you have you know just a few choices of fuck uh, that yeah no so i don't think that that's the nature of cannabis and so i think that it will have a a built-in resistance to that kind of economic phenomena but i still think that it's important for us in the cannabis space to try to you know buck that whenever it mm-hmm. comes our way and but i like i said i think that nature will do that um because it's evolving and and we're evolving as consumers and the plant is evolving through breeding and evolving just in the fact that you know we've like we've just barely seen the tip of the iceberg yeah as far as what can come out of this plant and, and the different benefits that we're going to see that it has for humanity and for the planet in general. Mm. Yeah. And I was uh, perusing your website and I came across your autoflower section. Um, What type of growers are buying autoflower genetics from you? Like what are they looking to do in comparison to maybe some other stuff that you are uh, currently selling? Yeah, that's a good question. So autos are, you know, we've been breeding cannabis for over 20 years and only probably breeding autos for like five years. So they are relatively new. And I think they're largely new in, in California. Um, it seems Mm -hmm. like they, you know, they've been more popular, uh, in Europe for a little bit longer. So there are folks there. Yeah, it is. And the culture over there, maybe they're growing indoors. They want shorter cycles. You think that kind of uh, brought on the autoflowering genetics a little bit sooner than us out here that might be growing outdoors and um, influencing our genetics that way? Yeah, I mean, I think that that was a factor. I, also, it's my understanding that that Siberia was the original you know, where nature created an autoflower. And so, wow, I've know, never heard of that. Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure that that's the case. And that, you know, then in Holland and some of the sort of cannabis centers, Spain and places like that, that uh, folks started quickly crossbreeding like the original ruderalis low rider types and, what we found in the last, which I think is something that was surprising because I didn't necessarily 
expect that that it would be some sort of malleable but hmm. what we what we found is that that autoflower characteristic can essentially be just kind of copied and pasted into the genetic makeup of you know any of our photo period type so when i say photo period i mean mm -hmm. of course the cannabis that most of us are used to that that begins to flower when the either the naturally the light starts to days get shorter in the fall or if if you uh, are in an indoor or light deprivation so photo period versus autoflower or day neutral cannabis that just essentially flowers like no matter what you do uh, a few months after you start the seed and and then is done on average maybe you know two and a half three months later so that trait though it, it's crazy how useful it can be because with the uh, light depth as a growing technique that has become very popular in California, for example, we end up using inadvertently kind of a lot of plastic. And that's not something I think that any of, of us cannabis growers are very proud about. And we'd love to see those kinds of impacts go away. And an autoflower is really, you know, not, you're not losing anything. What, what I think I originally assumed was that we would lose a bunch of quality in the flower or a bunch of turpins or just that you couldn't kind of have your cake and eat it too but it turns out in in our experience with auto breeding that we're able to essentially just take that one trait that you know let's flower you know, just not when the light tells us to, but just when our internal clock tells us to, you can take that trait and literally paste it into any kind of cannabis and, and have incredible the, yeah. faster yields. Yeah. And more control, right. More control. Uh, although, you know, adversely, like you, you could also say that the photo period flowering gives you a little bit more control too because you can just like one problem that some people have ran into with autos is if you don't they're not like magical beans you know you don't <laughs> have a plant that just grows you know so people will start them uh when it's still really cold for example like here in Humboldt, if, if you start a seed and plant it outdoors in February or March, like just try to put it right in the ground, it's not gonna do very well and it's gonna struggle and, and it won't get big. And then if it's only, you know, six, seven inches tall and it's an autoflower, it's gonna flower whether you like it or not. Whereas one that is a, a photo period type, you can say to yourself, well, you know, I want this plant to be at least two feet tall before it starts to bud. So, yeah. so there's, there's pros and cons, but really the, the pros I think in a lot of respects outweigh the cons. And I think people will gravitate more and more towards the autoflower genetic. And one thing I really like about it is the fact that, you know, it's, it's nice for the 
home grower, the backyard grower to be able to just go and, and, you know, treat the plant more like they would treat uh, a tomato plant and, and have, you know, a nice little harvest of, of bud just a few months later. So the smaller yield, but quicker time and a little bit easier to easier to grow and maintain for that new grower. Yeah. Yep. I think those are some of the qualities. There's other drawbacks are the fact that I can't stress enough how important it is to never let an autoflower plant get root bound. And I I didn't believe it until I had done enough experimentation myself, but Mm -hmm. we normally uh, treat the, the photo period seedlings that we do. We, you know, wait until they're kind of, you know, holding together the soil that's in the pot and then we'll transplant and, and move them into a larger pot size. But with autoflower, if you've waited until the roots are, you know, kind of encircling the soil, you've waited too long and they'll actually start to flower before they've gotten big enough to be of substance. So that's something that that's a good tip for everyone Any, out there getting into autoflower. Anyone who's listening, just it's hard to believe, and and I didn't believe it myself, but I came to learn very quickly that it is actually true that you do not want to let the autoflower, any autoflower cannabis, become too root bound because it will just flower out on you. And that could yeah. be it can be kind of a cool thing because if you only want a plant that you know, gets like two feet tall, you could put it in a, a one gallon or a two gallon. And it's really only ever going to get, you know, a foot and a half to two feet tall. And, uh, but then it'll flower, it'll be done quicker. So it's kind of, you do have a lot more control Interesting. in, in a lot of ways. So Nat, what's on the horizon for Humboldt Seed Company and uh, let's say the next 10 years, what are you guys working on? Maybe some projects that you can share with us? Yeah. Um, well, I think I talked a little bit earlier about how we're, we're growing and expanding a little bit into these mm-hmm. sort of other uh, places and, and markets. And that's exciting for us because you know, we, we always intended, like the whole goal was to provide something that was a service to people that wanted to grow cannabis, be it commercially or, uh, you know, uh, one of the things I get a lot of, um, it makes me feel good to see people having success, like in their backyard or in their uh, little closet grow and and people that are new to it um, so I know that we're going to continue that and I know that we're you know we're nice people and we just like to help people and that's kind of our company culture and, and so you're authentic right you, <laughs> you genuinely want to produce a really good product for your customers and I feel like that service and that story shines through like we were talking about earlier with certain companies that might have a different story behind closed doors to what they share with their, you know, their fans, their followers, their customers. So 
I commend you for that. For 20 years, you have built that reputation and, and stuck to it. Yeah, well, it was never, um, never about the money, that's for sure. And, you know, for the longest time, I mean, here in Humboldt, my colleagues or friends or just our community, I think kind of didn't get it. They were just like, oh, you know, he is, he must really enjoy doing that, playing with pollen and breeding and all that. Because it wasn't so much like it, it certainly, we could have made a lot more money. I could have done a lot more, you know, winter vacations in Thailand or whatever it was. Like Sounds if, pretty if, nice. Yeah, I know. But <laughs> it just, I guess it wasn't like so much our style. And, and yeah, I didn't talk about this very much, but for many years, uh, many of us who have been involved with the company were also biologists or scientists that worked to like, I, my focus was fisheries biology and I did a whole bunch of stuff with the, the uh, removing the Klamath river dams, which is people say, you know, the world's largest river restoration project. And so science and that was, you know, this, this was never about money for us. We learned a lot about doing your following your heart and your passion. And, you know, that was a work that was passionate. We were all passionate about helping protect, you know, locally helping protect Humboldt's environment and helping, uh, you know, Northern California in general and, and even global issues. And so, yeah. Um, I think it, it just so happens that, you know, we I have a great business model, but it's probably pretty clear to people that um, we don't do it for the money. So, yeah, you're in it for all the right reasons. So we have reached our, our time with this interview. Thank you so much for joining me today. And uh, I'd love to extend you the, the platform um, of Canna Cribs to share directly with our listeners anything that we didn't mention, maybe something that we missed in this interview. Um, it, the floor is yours, my friend. Excellent. Yeah, well, we will be definitely promoting because this has been a, a great opportunity for us to kind of get the word out about what we do. And, and we love what you guys do as well with Cannon Cribs. So I know you've been to, you know, a lot of mutual friends and Mm -hmm. it's a small, small world actually with the whole cannabis community. So, uh, and I look forward to a a day when we can actually have you up on our, our different farms and count me in that show you, I know we're sending some video and stuff, but yeah, we'll have to get you out there and, Back to Humboldt. Yes, back to Humboldt. I love that. And we will make it a Candy Crib special where we film your next mega phenotype hunt. You yeah. Know, you, you had 10,000 plants. Maybe we can increase that. Maybe we can do some new things. Uh, we have a bunch of drones that we can fly and um, it'll be a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. That sounds awesome. Well, thank you again, Nat. I really appreciate you, everything that you're doing for this industry. Um, keep Keep up with the great work and uh, I'll talk to you soon.
Hey, thanks for listening to the Can of Cribs podcast. I hope you learned something new. And if you like this episode, you're probably going to like our other series by Growers Network, like Can of Cribs and Deep Roots. You can check it out on our YouTube channel. Also, if you want to join 10,000 other growers around the world to help elevate your craft, check out growersnetwork.org. It's an online growing forum for growers just like you. See you on the next episode.